All right, thank you guys. Good seeing you this morning. We are continuing in our series on uh, behavioral theology, cognitive behavioral theology. That is how you think about things theologically can provide a foundation that is necessary for the wellness and uh, the sense of well-being, the integrity of our person that God would desire uh, for, for each and every one of us. And this may well be the most important message in this series because it has to do with establishing in your mind once and for all your sense of identity, Uh, your self-identity, and especially in perilous times such as this, in uh, seasons of cataclysmic change, when so many are fearful, when so many are uprooted, have a sense of being uprooted, where there, there is this overwhelming sense of instability that seems prevalent in so many people's lives today. Uh, it's a sense of self-identity and a biblical perspective on self-identity that, that gives to you a sense of rootedness and groundedness. And where that is lacking, you will find those individuals flitting about trying to find some scenario in this day and time, trying to find something that, that makes them feel better than what they are feeling right now. Whenever you talk about self-identity, that, that is a term that, that at one time was, was a very simple idea. It was, it, was, uh, it was something that was not difficult to grasp. When you talk about your self-identity, we understand that to be a kind of amalgamation, a, a throwing together of, of your life experiences, your memories, your, your values, your experiences, and all of those things together, they, they give you a sense of, of who you are. But not surprisingly in our day and time, that which was formerly simple and easily understood has become very complex. Uh, because today people don't just struggle with the sense of self-identity. Now then you've got to worry about such things as, as identity politics in our day and time. Now, identity politics was a, was a phrase that was coined back in the 1970s, but it has, it has become prevalent in really these past 20, 25 months here, especially in, in the West. But the idea of, of identity politics is it, it's a political approach wherein people of, of, of similar gender, religion, race, socioeconomic uh, background, uh, all of those kinds of things where they join together to develop political agendas uh, based upon those factors that identify them. Out of that, we have, we have been inundated in in probably the past couple of years with another aspect of this that is oftentimes referred to as gender identity. Gender identity. That is the personal sense of of one's own gender. Now by personal, I I mean that if you do not agree with or you do not like uh, the assigned sex from your birth event, then you have the personal freedom to make your own choice, your own decision, based upon your likes and your feelings, what personal pronoun you want used in referring to your gender. Now, depending upon the sources that that you look at, there are some 72 to 78 pronouns used today to identify gender. 72 
to 78 pronouns that are utilized to identify gender. Beyond him, her, he and she. Universities have now made it available to students to register their information based upon their preferred gender pronoun. Most universities are allowing students to do that today. Understand though, and hear this, it's barely above 1% of students nationally that have expressed in their opportunities to do so, they only, only just over 1% have expressed a preference for a pronoun other than he or she. Only 1%. Hear that, only 1%. And so hearing that, we're, we're not surprised that if you're familiar with George, George Orwell's dystopic novel, 1984, we're not surprised that we find there written a line by him, the heresy of heresies is common sense. Now, I realize that for some, and for some families, this is a very sensitive issue, and I, I don't want to neglect that because I am the first to acknowledge that there are some there are some biological and social anomalies that do exist within the human population. But what we need to recognize is that from the viewpoint of common sense, and much more so for our concern this morning as, as those who call themselves followers of Christ, from a biblical worldview, gender identity is assigned within the created order. The creator himself has designated them male and female. It is a matter of compatibility. It is a matter of common sense. And so for the sake of common sense and for the sake of a biblical understanding of what is being fashioned as complex social issues, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to borrow from the Apostle Paul and to examine for our benefit as a community of faith the only identity that really matters. That is, the identity that we have in Christ Jesus. Because it is this identity alone, who we are in Christ Jesus, that will give to us a sense of rootedness and stability in a world that is undergoing cataclysmic change. And this biblical understanding, when it is rightly understood, when it is rightly embraced, when it is rightly practiced, it will give to every person a sense of identity, a sense of who I am and a sense of rootedness in life. Listen to the words of of Paul here in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. And, and this is part, and I, I dislike taking random texts like this. We're going to go back in the months ahead. We're going to go, and we're going to go through the book of Romans verse by verse. We're going to do a verse by verse exposition of the book of, of Romans, and I very much look forward to that. And, and what Paul writes here in chapter 8 is really part of a larger section that goes back to the beginning of chapter 6, if not chapter 5, and talk about how the life of faith is to be lived. Now, many come to the book of Romans, they say, well, this is such a doctrinally rich book, and it, and it certainly is. But Paul never writes for the purpose of doctrine. Now, he, he, he espouses some theological certainties and theolog, 
theological truth. But Paul's concern always for the community of faith is how are, they th- how are these things lived out? How are, these, how are these theological realities, how are these doctrinal truths lived out in my life and yours as followers of Jesus Christ? So when it comes to understanding who we are, our identity in Christ, this is what Paul writes. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of, do- of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be be glorified with him. So how do you and I this morning, how do we take these verses penned by Paul 2,000 years ago, how do we take these verses and how do we establish once and for all, never having to be revisited, but how do we establish once and for all with certainty and conviction this identity that is to be ours in Christ Jesus that defines who we are and the life we are to pursue? Well, the first thing, if we just look again at that first clause, there in verse 15, the first thing that, that is necessary that I hear Paul saying to these Christians in, in Rome, the first thing that is necessary in establishing our identity in Christ, and Paul is writing to, to, a, to the church, to a community of believers, and, and something that is vital to rightly understanding the book of Romans. It's tempting to hear him talking about individuals and individual salvation and along those lines. Paul is talking about what it is to be the people of God. What, it, what is it to be the church? What is it to be a unique and distinctive community? What is it to be those that represent all the promises that were made to the nation of Israel? But along those lines, to properly understand that and put it into practice, what is necessary if my identity is to be in Christ and in nothing else, then it is of utmost importance, what is is of utmost importance is appropriating what you have received. Appropriating what you have received, appropriating what God has given to you. And by that, I mean laying claim to what God has said is true. Laying claim, laying personal claim, personal belief, personal faith in everything that God has said to be true. To not think that he's just, when I read these things, to think that he is talking about someone else, but not me. Notice in this first clause, he says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear Again, now we're going to take kind of a backdoor uh, look, a backdoor approach to coming to what, to, to what I've been speaking to of appropriating what you have received, appropriating what God has given to you. First of all, he says what you haven't been given, what you have not received from God and from the Spirit of God, you have not received the spirit of fear. The fear you're now experiencing, the uncertainty you're feeling, the questioning that you're feeling, the despondency, the disappointment, the depression, the anxiety. This, this, God is not the author of confusion. You did not receive that from God. And so what you have received from me and what you are failing to appropriate to yourself, what you are failing to receive and claim, 
It's the exact opposite of what, of what this world is giving you, of what Satan is creating in your mind. I haven't given you a spirit of fear. Now, keep in mind the context. Paul is writing to a group of Roman Christians. They've become fearful. They have become despondent. The enthusiasm of conversion, the, 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 the enthusiasm of the newness of their faith has worn off. And now then, they are in the most secular setting they could possibly, it's the most, it's the most secular setting in which they could find themselves, Rome, the Roman Empire. So here these believers are in Rome, the, this, this very unique community living in a hostile place, a world that, that, that is hostile towards the things of God, that has no regard for the things of God. Every appeal of the flesh is with hand reach. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And now then, the enthusiasm is worn off and they are feeling the allure of the world. All of a sudden, they're feeling very vulnerable. They're feeling very human again. And now the sins that they grappled with before, now then, those sins are making their way back into their life again. Now then, I'm becoming fearful that, that maybe, maybe what I experienced wasn't real. See, this is, how, this is the devil's playground. This is how the devil works between our ears. Maybe you're not really a follower of Christ. Maybe all that you experienced and those claims that you asserted, maybe that's not really true. And they're becoming despondent and despairing that, that maybe this task is just, just too large. They've been Christian long enough. They've heard enough sermons. They've heard enough admonitions. They, uh, they, they've heard enough beseechment. I beseech you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've heard enough imperatives and admonitions non-negotiables and they're seeing in the mirror of those words their own failures and their own shortcomings and as oftentimes happens they start setting up their own religious practice you know they want some sort of measuring stick listen I'm failing in the light of scripture so I've got to I've got to I've, I've got to I've got to base it on new moon festivals I've got to base my obedience on on uh, on not doing this or not doing that these people do that I'm not going to do that so maybe that means I'm more Christian than they are that's the tendency of human nature and we don't ever lower the standard of God's word. This sets the tone for what we are or aspiring to. So we, don't, so we don't ever lower the standard just because of my failure to live it out. Paul says what you're doing, listen, all you're doing in that is you're creating a whole nother kind of law that's holding you hostage. The life of faith that has been introduced to you, it's about, it's about freedom, it's about, it's about being set free from this law that, that condemns you, that indicts you. You're just creating a whole other set of practices that, that are no less damning, no less indicting. It's prevalent not just in Rome. Paul had to write about it to Timothy, he had to write about it to, to the church at Colossae. If you go to Colossians chapter two, I 
I want to start reading in verse 16. It's rather lengthy, but I think it's so valuable to hear word, hear these words of Paul because it's a concern not just for Roman Christians, but it's for Christians everywhere. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And not holding firmly to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man? These are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above. I understand your failures, your shortcomings, but you've been set free. Don't be held hostage by by earthly things and man-made forms of religion. Aspire to higher things. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that that are on earth. Even to Timothy, he would have to say in that first letter in chapter four and verses one through three, but the spirit explicitly says in latter times and later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Paul says that, that we who have died in Christ, we who have been, have been raised up in the life of the resurrection, he said, you are not, you are not designed to live under this kind of, of fear. You see, in all these kinds of of fears that man creates, they they are wrongful fears. They create wrong fears about different things, a wrongful fear of God. Now, there is a healthy fear of God that is admonished in Scripture, but, but this is an unhealthy fear of God. You see, God is your advocate. Most people, sadly, and sadly, even in the church, most people have a view and a, a perspective of God has no biblical basis, but because of their, their practice of, of man-made religion, they, they think that God is some sort of heavenly monger police officer just waiting for you to mess up, and he'll take great delight in making your life miserable. Listen, God is your advocate. God is your intercessor. God is your redeemer. He is your your restorer, your healer. 
God is the one actively create, God is the one actively engaged in history trying to correct the brokenness of this world. It's a fear that many have, many New Testament manifestations of this, not only a, a wrongful fear of God, but a wrongful fear of the Christian life, that if we're really going to be successful at this, we better cloister ourselves. We better sequester ourselves away from everyone else. They live in fear of, of the world, that somehow the world, we, we've got to protect ourselves. And, and the church in its history went through a terrible period called the Dark Ages. And it's when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ embraced this, this kind of monasticism, this, this, this sequestering away of themselves from the world. A fear that it might mess up a fear that they might be tainted by, by the world. It creates an unhealthy fear of Satan. It's always struck me. And in my time as a believer, in my entry into the life of the church as a 21-year-old student, I was struck by my occasional crossing of the path with those Christians who were so preoccupied with Satan. You know, it's like it's, a, it's some kind of worldview that, that, that see, it sees a booger bear behind every tree. And it's an unhealthy, instead of, instead of Christ having a place of, of preeminence, in, instead of Christ making us victors in this world, champions for the cause of Christ, a part of this offensive movement that, that is to be the church. Oh, they quake in fear of, of Satan, just waiting for him to to jump out and say, boo. An unhealthy, wrongful kind of, of fear. That's why Paul would say in Galatians chapter five and verse one, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep, keep standing firm. Don't go back to this. Keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to a yoke slavery. See, you've, you've got to believe that. You've got to believe the claims and the promises of, of Scripture. You've got to believe the words of an Apostle Paul who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, for it is God who is at work in you, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. You can't just read that and say, oh, I believe it. You can't just affirm doctrinal truths. You've got to appropriate it for yourself. You can't just believe it's true for everybody else. You've got to believe that it's true for you. Because it's only as you do that your identity in Christ is, is firmly established. The second thing in this passage that emerges as a necessity in establishing our identity, our self-identity, not just appropriating what you've received, what God has given, but also accepting who you are. See, whether you realize it or not, when you committed your life to being a follower of Jesus Christ, it gives to you an identity an identity of your, your name really, your, your family name truly changes. You have to accept who you are. Notice he says here, 
we just continue on in verse 15, but you have received, you haven't received a spirit of fear. I've given you something completely different. You have, have received a spirit of adoption. As sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In reading this, I thought it was interesting, went back to double check to make sure. But it's interesting here that, that Paul is speaking to, to Roman people. He's speaking to Roman Christians of people who speak Greek. But yet even here, he uses the Aramaic term that we saw Jesus use in, in the Gospels. We see the Aramaic terms, the Aramaic transliteration, the use of the word Abba. So for here, for a Greek-speaking people, he is still using the word, Aramaic word, Abba. We see it again over in, in Galatians, a different kind of audience. It's a Gentile audience. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, he nonetheless uses, uses an Aramaic term for a Gentile-speaking people, a non-Greek-speaking people, non-Aramaic-speaking people. Even for them, he uses the term Abba, Father. So apparently what we have here, the, the reality is, is that uh, some Palestinian Christians that probably we know made their way to Rome before, before Paul in their preaching and teaching uh, used this term Abba, Father, in a way that the people already understood it. And the cry here, in which we cry out Abba, Father, it's present tense. It is used continually to affirm the relationship and the closeness of God to his children. He's like a daddy to you. You have the privilege as a child adopted of by the most high. An adoption that we understand legally, that we understand theologically brings, brings with it the legal right to inheritance, as he says in verse 17, in just a moment, the, the reality is we're co-heirs with Christ. Everything coming to Christ is coming to you. It's the fulfillment of the rule of adoption that you see in the adoption formula in 2 Samuel in chapter 7 and verse 14. In describing the Messiah that is coming to David, he said, I will, I will be a father to him. And he shall be a son to me. I shall be a father to him. And he shall be a son to me. And Paul is now borrowing from that, that imagery in the book of Romans and other places in his writing. And he's saying what is true, listen church, what is true of God the Father and his relationship with God the Son. I will be his father and he will be my son. It is nonetheless true for you. In fact, Paul would borrow that language in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. He would cite that verse and he would use it in a way to make that affirmation to the community of faith, the people of God, the church. I will be their God. 
and they will be my sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. But you don't really appreciate the benefits of all that, the possibilities of that, the implications of that, until you accept who you are. That if you truly are dead in Christ, the past is gone. It's a matter of what you are now. Are you going to be the beneficiary of what God desires to give to those he has identified as his son, as his daughter? To receive what God desires to give to you, the stability, the rootedness in a world that offers none of that. Because if you don't embrace it, listen, you're always just going to be flitting around. You're going to be easy, easily offended. You're just going to bounce around in life, in all arenas of your life, trying to find something else to give you a sense of rootedness, stability, and grounding in a world that simply cannot give that. But you've got to accept who you are. Harriet Tubman of Underground Railroad fame when she was being awarded and recognized for all of, the all of the thousands that she was helping to escape to freedom, she made an interesting observation and statement that is nonetheless true for any of us. She said, I could have saved thousands of more. I could have saved thousands more if I could have just convinced them that they were free. History, in the history of slavery, in the history of colonization, if you study those things and read of those things, you understand that there is a mindset that even those that have been granted freedom, who have been released, there is still a psychological mindset that cannot be overcome, that remains enslaved to a former way. You see the importance of appropriating these things for yourself? Accepting what God the Father has said about you, the unique status that, that he has afforded you? To see how something like this changes the trajectory of your life. But there's a final thing very quickly that is necessary in transforming your self-identity. It's actualizing where you are destined. Actualizing where you are destined. Actualizing where your life is now headed as a follower of Christ. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, verse 17, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, th this is the objective side of what Paul is saying. This is the practical, applicable side of what Paul is saying. Just as the work of, just as the work of the Holy Spirit, just as the work of the Spirit has brought about a transformed identity in your life, it also brings about a transformed behavior. 
that you and I are living our life because we are for, f- followers of Christ, we, we are living our lives in a, in a different way. We understand that as one adopted by, by God the Father whose identity is, is in Christ, I, I understand that I'm someone of destiny. And as a result of that, I'm, I'm to live differently. It means faith has to be practiced. Our faith is not just a, a bunch of precepts that, that are acknowledged and believed. I think, about, I think about Peter when he saw Jesus walking on the water and, G, and Peter asked if he could come out of the boat and, and walk towards them. And everything started out great. But then, but then Peter started noticing the circumstances around him, the waves, the wind, which he had already seen previously. And he began to sink and he cried out when they got in the boat safely. And Jesus asked him, uh, Peter, where's your faith? Why is your faith so small? In other words, why is your faith not being, being exercised? Why are you not practicing your faith? You know, when Peter was floundering, when he was sinking, if you'd gone up to Peter in that circumstance or shouted at, at Peter when he was sinking, what, what if you had shouted at Peter, Peter, do you believe in the deity of Jesus? He wouldn't have denied it. He would have said, yes, of course. Peter, do you believe that, that he was born of a virgin? Yeah, yes, he did. There was no great doctrinal truth, no great theological truth that was at stake in Peter's sinking. Peter had all of his theological ducks in a row pretty well. He wasn't exercising his faith. He had a faith that believed all the right things, but, but he just refused to practice his faith. If my identity is truly to be rooted in Christ Jesus, mine is a faith that has to be practiced. What I believe has, has to be exercised. And so for Paul, when he thinks about the life that is to be ours, that, it, that this working of the Spirit that, that transforms our identity, that, that drives our behavior. He sees the, the person of the Holy Spirit, Paul does, as the prime mover in, in, in our moral lives, in the lives that we are pursuing to live. Paul's concern in his writing, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't see the work of the Holy Spirit, the prime force and driving motivation of, of the Holy Spirit to be these ecstatic manifestations. That, that's not what Paul's emphasis is in his letters. Paul sees the working of the Holy Spirit in how you and I behave in daily life, how we are living out our faith, especially when it comes to manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. It gets pretty simple the older you get. Am I growing in Christ Jesus? Is my identity in Christ becoming more and more rooted? Am I, am I becoming more like him? Go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Is that becoming more evident in your life? It's not, about, it's not about having all your theological questions answered. What does the fruit look like? Is that being borne out in your life? You got a bad attitude? You pouty? You needy? Expect to be catered to? Eh? You're probably not getting along in the journey too well. You may have all your theological questions answered, but you, 
You're not putting into practice. So you and I have a great responsibility. We as the church, that's who's being addressed. In a world that is broken, in a world that is unstable, in a world that is going through cataclysmic shifts, people that are, that are panicky. And sadly, a great many confessing Christians getting caught in the wake of such things. You and I have a, have a responsibility as a follower of Christ to, to reflect a kind of rootedness, stability, unwavering identity in who I am as a follower of Christ. And in so doing, we have an opportunity to show to others in their fear, in their anxiety, in their instability, a life of peace. You see, for Paul, it's a mindset. It's not about perfection. That's what he's saying. It's not about perfection. It's about your orientation. Are you oriented toward the things of God? It's a mindset. He says in verse 5, for those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And by establishing our identity once and for all, you and I are witnesses to this world of a rootedness that brings life and peace. Let's pray together. Father, how significant these words are to each and every one of us. We who so easily take for granted this identity that you have entrusted to us. My heart, my concern, my prayer this morning, Lord, is for those that, that are floundering in their, in their sense of self, who they are, what they are about, what they are pursuing. And that, Lord, as your Holy Spirit would speak to their heart as it beckons them to follow after the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that this might be for them what, what your word calls the day of salvation. Where someone present or watching online makes a determination to commit themselves to following after Jesus. That they are going to put their trust in him, following after him. They don't know what all that means. None of us really know all the implications of that. It's still just a journey. It's about what we are becoming. We're a people of destiny. And for those who are floundering, Father, I pray a word of stability for them that can be found in Christ Jesus. For those that live in guilt and shame, Father, I claim over them a word of freedom, a word of forgiveness, that they might know that you are a God of redemption. You are a God that restores. You are the God of beginning again. That you're a God that desires to take all of our circumstances, all of our events, all things that have brought us to where we are right now. And from this day forward, your sole concern 
is about fashioning in us a faith that is moving towards a final destination. So I pray, Lord, that many might respond and give their life to you. That they might rest and settle themselves once and for all to finding their identity in Christ, in Christ alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.